This is Erased. I'm Colette Bauer-Zinn. And this is Lisa Johnson. Two Black moms bonded by bluntness, tenacity, and an unwavering commitment to creating communities of support. Every Thursday, we're exploring where the intersections of education, race, and culture collide, dissecting interracial issues to help you navigate and thrive, despite being marginalized. Welcome to Erased. I am your co-host, Lisa Johnson. Right here with Colette Bowers-Zinn. And we are so happy to have you tuning in for another week. How you doing? I'm here, sis. Yeah. How are you? I'm living the dream. Not really. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so school's back in session. School is back in session. Uh, what are you thinking about school being back in session? How do you think the kids are knowing that, you know, they've, they're now back in school and a lot a lot's happening. I got to give it up for the kids. Yeah. Uh, because based on a lot of their experiences in the spring, they still managed to show up this fall yeah. with goodwill and the ability to re-engage. Yeah. And I think that my kids in particular, but from what I'm hearing around from friends, family, et cetera, the kids are engaging. I now, think they're engaging more. Additionally, I got to give it up for these schools who pivoted and took this time over the summer to reflect and reevaluate these online systems and have come back strong with a bang. Applause for every teacher in the world. That was happening last <laughs> spring, too, though, yeah. to be clear. Yeah. Teachers are the true champions. But I think it shut up a lot of people who, you know, last year were like, hey, and this year, crickets, like, because <laughs> they've handled it. It's, it's, it seems like a much smoother remote learning experience. But, but here, here to the kid piece, because I feel like they got their mojo over the summer. They're coming back and they're pivoting and, and adjusting to having to do stuff on screen. But I feel like they're, they're more vocal. And resilience was the hot topic in parenting before COVID. And here it is in play. Yeah. These kids have been resilient. So keep it like up. Like no other. Keep yes. it up. So we had originally talked about doing access organizations for today's topic. Yep. Getting into these schools. Yep. And then our last conversation happened. And so <laughs> I asked us to do a pivot. And yes. back on the scene is Stephen, the prof Cleveland. And we'll get to him in a minute. But I want to tell you why we had to do this shift midstream. Because the tea. The tea. So I was a little uncomfortable for a moment <laughs> in the conversation last time. And I was in my head and I was like, do I say something in the moment? No, I need to reflect on it a little more. And post-session, I thought about it. <laughs> and I reached out to Steven and he's such a good sport. I was like, come on back in the studio because I need to call you out about something and we need to have a conversation. And he's here back in his good sport way, but let's get at it. Okay. So when we were having a conversation last week, <laughs> you were referencing a song that you were exploring with your students and bitch was in the song and you dropped about how many B words in that conversation forward, but then said that you don't feel comfortable saying the N word. So I needed to bring you back to have the conversation about why it's okay in your mind to say bitch, but not to say the N-word. Which I think is true for quite a few people. Quite a few people. So we would love to hear. So our topic today is nice. going to get into the intersectionality of racism and sexism, with Stephen being a really good sport <laughs> coming back for the call out. Or but he just likes the pain. Correct. Yeah. But I want to start with you 
Stephen, the Prof Cleveland activist, filmmaker, and professor of Black Studies at Cal State East Bay. Welcome back. Welcome. And let's get at it. Why awesome. one, not the other? What awesome. Say First you? of all, thank you for having me. It's Astronaut. awesome to be here <laughs> with my fellow astronauts uh, and doing and <laughs> yeah. doing astronaut yeah. things. Astronomical. You know but it's so interesting that you said it because I, you know, it's, it's a conversation I ended up having. I had the same conversation with my class. Actually, we were doing Black Films class, and we were talking about it. Uh, and so I sort of went back to my students and I was like, you know, I've been thinking a bit about this idea of, of how the B word sort of, it, sort of was okay. Uh, and how the N word sort of didn't feel as comfortable. And I, I say part of it is the truth of, uh, reflecting music, right? So as a professor, sort of when I'm analyzing things, if someone uses a word, I don't say N word or B word, right? So when you're analyzing, it just, it's a little weird <laughs> to not sort of articulate what it is and explore it, right? So part of it was response to the song, but the other part was that I'm just real comfortable with it. Like it was the other part was this, like we had this whole, we had this conversation. I was like, you know, I am a recovering sexist, uh, as are most men who grew up in the time that I grew up because television told me this is how, what women's roles were. Mama reinforced it. Uh, every, you know, everybody in the community sort of had had this sort of thing. And so you just become comfortable uh, in a way with that. And I, I was like, I think that part of that then made me not aware, right? Because I don't. it was really an oversight in my thinking, right? Because not aware of uh, the dichotomy, right, of the idea of using the B word fluently, while at the same time not using the N word, and and it's really interesting because I'd say in most there have been more B word songs than there have been N word songs, right? And so part of it is it's like part of pop culture uh, that there is people use the N word in songs. Don't get me wrong, I'm saying, but titles of songs, mm -hmm. uh, like like it's so uh, so to me that's part of it. The normalization of the B word is there. So I you know I just say you know apologize a little bit sexist in that moment because uh, because in catching it I, I brought it to my students and I was like I nobody called me on in my class, but then you know I was like I just want to you know, reflected. I was like, you know, that we have to sort of balance it in terms of moving forward. So I feel that I take that one. It's not a big deal. I mean, you had me at I'm a recovering sexist. Well, it's true. Though. How many black men do you hear say that? So candidly. Well, I mean, I think it's something that we you're taught to be ashamed. That's the reason why white people have such a big problem with the racism they live in with, right? right? Is we don't accept the fact that we live in a society that 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 brings us to these things, right? Sexism, racism, all these intersectionalities, right. homophobia is just built in the cooking, right? So you you uh you know get so comfortable with it, get so regular, like you know, a lot of people talk about traditional values. When I hear that word, I get like uncomfortable. I was like, wait, and so this idea is traditional. Traditional values, the traditional roles, and a sense of that uh, sort of justifies people being uh, bad actors, right? And so the truth is, you have to accept that, like, hey, I'm working on this, uh, and in my natural state, right, yeah. uh, without being conscious of it, without the the wonderful strong sisters in my life, I was fortunate to have a lot of great great female friends uh, who helped me to yeah. sort of understand sort of the different nuances of 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 um, of being sexist, right? The sexism is not like sort of a straight up simple thing. It's sort of nuanced, right? You can be a loving, engaged husband and still have a vision of your wife that doesn't allow her the freedom to self-determine who she is, right? You, that's really connected to 
the way that you've been taught, the way that the power yeah. structure has, has laid out in terms of what gender rolling is. I mean, and, and as we all know in the self-discovery, like when we're in relationships, you realize that, wow, I like doing some stuff that, you know, fits in another category, right? That, that's a part of me, you know, who doesn't fit into that. And the same thing with, with I think, my partner in that sense. So, And so... We're going to talk about intersectionality, of specifically with racism and sexism, but I just want to lay the foundation that intersectionality was coined in 1989 by Professor Kimberly Crenshaw to describe how race, class, gender, and other individual characteristics intersect with one another and overlap. We say coined because the term existed well before Kimberly Crenshaw. However, it became a pop culture term when she reintroduced it in 19. 19- 89. So we're specifically talking about how race and, and sex overlaps in the forms of racism and sexism specifically. So I want to ask you, um, as an activist, scholar, and most importantly, filmmaker, do you consider these intersections of racism and sexism in your work? Let's definitely do. I mean, well, I think about it, you know, as I put the professor hat on, one of the things we were doing uh, actually, this term is reexamining the course that I'm teaching. And uh, one of the considerations I made when, when, when shifting the course was making sure that we honored uh, women's voices. So Kimberly Crenshaw is a clip that we added to the work that we're doing and, and the conversation about uh, how we see violence against women or how we remember violence against women differently than we remember violence against men, uh, black men specifically. So, so how uh, we know the names of black men uh, much more readily than we do the name of black women. And so, so that clip sort of uh, reinforces exactly what you're saying, that the intersectionality of it means that uh, oftentimes in our pursuit of protecting blackness, we're, we're looking squarely at black men and not necessarily considering the impact on black women. I think about the idea of schools, right? The idea of discipline in schools, like the numbers show that they are disproportionate, like black women are disproportionately uh, receiving penalties in schools, just like black men. But most of the time when we talk about uh, schools and, and the disproportionate amount of attention black folks get, we're talking about black men. So that's a, another example of I want to talk specifically about that unique intersectionality of Black women. But before we get there, you just touched on it. So I want to take it a little further. I have a, I had a question for you about, like, does this dynamic play out into what we see with, like, a Breonna Taylor? So, you know, we're seeking out justice in all of these cases. And it's coming for George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery by what the system is putting in place or trying to get at for their justice. And we saw this week, the same is not going to happen for her. And is it because she's a woman as well as black? Is that why people feel free to say the nonsense like we're hearing of, well, if she hadn't dated a drug dealer, none of this would ever happen. Victim blaming is a big part of it, holistically. I don't know. I'm, I'm, you know, I think that in regards to the attention, in regards to the notoriety, I think that Breonna Taylor was forgotten for a bit, right? So the reemergence of Breonna Taylor uh, came with activists really turning their energy to put focus back on her uh, when nothing was happening with the case for a long, long time. And so I think that it took activist energy to refocus the energy back to her and losing sight of Black women 
in this thing is something that I could say is is, is racial, but unfortunately, uh, sorry, not it's more, it's it's more in regards to gender. But mm-hmm. I think that that the way in which the system is treating her. Uh, would be more about racial because it's the way that it treats black folks holistically. So, so I think that that's the sort of complicated beauty of intersectionality. Is right? it just it, racial? Because, like I said, they're going after the people in George Floyd's case. But what do you and, think, Colette? I think it does have absolutely, to do with that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> absolutely. I mean, as black women, I don't think we know one without the other at all. Correct. Life doesn't allow us that privilege. Exactly. Exactly. So my thing is, how do we? How do we shine light on that? Like, we know there's an intersectionality. It's so intertwined and commingled that our experience is one and the same almost. Like, one issue is right behind the other. How do we, how do we acknowledge that? Because the fact that you're not getting there yet and the fact that you so blazingly know it to be true, and I do too, like, where's that disconnect? I'm not sure. I mean, I, I, part of what I'm saying, I guess, is not that it's not a part of it. But to understand that each level of the intersectionality hits, right? Yeah. And so I'm saying that it's complicated because it's sort of you know, you know, what about po- what about you know class? So what part of class is this play? Right, so to, right. and sort of the idea is like, all right, well you look at all these different intersections, and so depending on the case, right, there are different levels of intersections at play. But not everything is about your sex and not every action's about race. Like some of it, like I, like we talked about when we talked about the cultural appropriation piece, some of it is just bad. Like some, sometimes people do bad and it's not necessarily connected to anything except for their own ego, right? Uh, and, and, and it may be laced in the, uh, that's the part that's messed up about being Black in America is that you don't get a job and you don't get to have the freedom to know, I just wasn't the qualified person, right? You have to think, well, is it because I'm black? Right. right. It's like, you know, or. Any ism. Right, right. Or is it because I'm poor? Do you think they could tell that I wasn't, didn't grow up rich? Right. Like it's, so, so, or I'm not educated. I slip and, and use some of my home language. Right. And so I think that's sort of the complication that I'm saying. I'm not saying that it's not the case. I'm saying that it's hard to parse, like which part of you is being attacked, you know, and, and, and that is one of the side products of living. But I I think it's pretty clear in in this case that that her sex as well as her race is being attacked when I share comments like what I I did, where people are saying things like, had she not chosen to date a drug dealer? Right. Like, that's not even the dude that was in the house with her at the time. Yeah. Um, So just the fact that you even were bringing in the choice of who she was dating at the time is sexist. I want to jump really quickly to a great quote from um, Crenshaw when she's talking about the intersectionality of a Black woman. Crenshaw argues that Black women are discriminated against in ways that often do not fit neatly within the legal categories of either, quote, racism or sexism, but as a combination of both racism and sexism. Yet the legal system has generally defined sexism as based upon an unspoken reference to the injustices confronted by all, including white women, while defining racism to refer to those faced by all, including male, blacks and other people of color. This framework frequently renders black women legally invisible and without legal recourse. And I feel like that's exactly what is happening in this case. Black womanism. I'm going to coin a new phrase. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually there. That's a black womanism yeah. is is sort of 
sort of the black version of feminism, right? That's sort of sort of the a school of scholarship. But I, I guess one of the things that becomes super hard to say, right, it, it, or super hard to, I guess, what is our solution, right? Moving yeah. forward, the issue with Breonna Taylor is that it's really clear that people did real bad, right? That people did bad on so many levels. And for the fact that no one's being held accountable, I think that, yes, as a Black woman, the language around how people talk about it is racialized. Yes, as a, a as a Black woman, the way in which the, uh, the, 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 I guess the system feels comfortable ignoring and and not seeing her for real, where you say, wow, shooting the wall is a big deal, but shooting her body is not that big of a deal, right, in regards to the indictment. I think that is uh, one level, right? That's one level. Uh, but the other level is just the human level. I'm saying, y'all, that's just something wrong. Like, there's something wrong with people. Like, there's something wrong with who we are. There's like, definitely the human level, but I think... Like arguing the human level in this conversation takes it away from where I clearly am trying to put the spotlight back <laughs> that this intersectionality, specifically as it relates to black women, is a problem. And so, yes, human certain humans suck. We can all agree. Of, yeah. But who gets the brunt of that in this country? <sighs> and we carry so much. You guys are pretty awesome. I like that. I mean, I, I have no. Well, agree, to be agree. clear, that is the beauty of black women is that despite that being the case is we thrive and still right, we right, rise. Right, right, right. Amen to that. Which makes me wonder if that is exactly why we are the lowest on the totem pole. Right. Because the worth and the value is just so evident. But you got to, you know, got to kind of try and keep it there. Because if we don't, who knows what would happen? What do you mean? Just society. Like the fact that we're again, like we're trying to figure out how to even merge these concepts and acknowledge that this is a very real connected thing. Like we know it is to some degree. And yet, again, what are we doing about it? What's being done about it? We got a lot of activism around sexism, a lot of activism around racism. Where's who's fighting for us? And that's the question <laughs> I have next. Like black women show up. Right. We show up for a whole plethora of people and causes. And that is my call to action. Who's going to show up for us? It's been, it's but what does that been look a like? long time. What does that look like? Are we, Important. Yeah. But what does it look like? Like, where's the framework for it? I mean, maybe it exists. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I haven't done one iota of research on this, but maybe there, you know, maybe it already exists somewhere. I would love to know that. Yeah. I don't know if the framework exists yeah. and we should look into it, but I do know that people need to pause and, Accept it as truth and then right. navigate from said truth rather than. And knowing we're raising this another, you know, my own daughter, another generation. How do I how do I parent around that? Knowing that, you know, deal with it at some point. She deals with it now as a child. I'm sorry. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think it's true. I mean, I, you know, my daughter, I think about that. I think about the world she goes into and I and. You know, I, I recall a conversation I had with uh, with a good friend about sort of thinking about having a young black girl and, and the, the things that she faced both as a woman uh, and as a black person, how I, I want to create and hold space. And I think that is it. I think that for us in terms of I, what I can do, so I can answer your question for me personally, yeah, please. Is is I... 
from the capacity that I have privilege, the spaces that I have agency, I create space for black folks, mm -hmm. in particular black women, right? So the idea is that that's what you can do. All I can do is center them in the world that I have agency. And that's all anyone can do. I think that, that I think stop saying sort of like, so how do you like me to support you, Lisa? Instead, understanding it's partly my job to figure out right. how to hold space for you as well. Right. And so I think that's part of the reason why I continue to mess with this one over here, despite <laughs> the fact that she'd be throwing me under the bus every yep. time she gets, you know, because I'm like, I gotta hold her up. I gotta center her, even if it's a little hard. You hold me up because I'm amazing. No, that's Not true. out of obligation. Well, Let's, be of obligation. Let's be clear. Let's be clear. A little bit. So we need to be courting allyship a bit. Yes. Of it a is. different sort. And so what, I, and, and what I'm saying is I'm like on this topic, I'm saying that the issue with Breonna Taylor should not be her black womanism. It is an issue that, and I'm not trying to dismiss it. I'm saying that because of the circumstances around it, this is the most, like, it, it's no way it should not be acted on. It's almost like this. I read a comment from a black person who I shall remain nameless for this particular conversation, who said that if my Aubrey had a, had a ran differently, <gasps> then he might be alive no. still. What does that mean? That if he had to run in the street, if he had to hug the car, I really was like reading it like, wait, so you victim blaming this brother. For how he's jogging. <laughs> for how he's jogging because he got hunted by these people, right? And I'm saying that is exactly at play when we have conversations about Breonna Taylor, about how we hold Breonna Taylor in, in our collective psyche. That marginalizing that sort of you know not holding and centering her existence her value to her family uh her, her need for justice right that should be the thing until it's solved like this one is that level and i'm saying for everyone i'm not and so i'm saying that all folks should be all hands on deck until this one is made right. Yes. Uh, and that is the the level of energy that's not brought for black women. So I'm acknowledging that. But I'm saying what I'm saying is that it is just not it's not because she's a black. I mean, this is so egregious that if, if it was anybody, it should be you a hundred. I mean, how many bullets went into this sister's house? Right? While you it, sleep. While you're sleeping. Right. And and it, that is such an egregious thing that it doesn't matter who it happens to. The KKK should be mad about it, right? I'm serious, and I'm saying that that's the <laughs> level it is. Like it's a, because yeah. they should understand it's a, f a front against their rights. If they can kill her in the bed, then they can come for you. I'm right. saying that that's the truth, and that's to me that's a, the, never mind. They don't worry going. about that one. Though. Uh, they, well, because they're not a you know they're yeah. not a you know the black Black Lives Matter is a terrorist organization but the kkk is not i understand that's the that's the difference no but your point is so well made i mean i was i was making lunch yesterday for my family and i just had a moment of being like oh i could just be shot right now making lunch you know i could just something could happen and some burglar or something could be in my backyard police could be called out they look up and see a black woman in the kitchen <laughs> next thing you know bullet like right. just that easy just me doing something as mundane as eating up some chicken nuggets and and the sexism comes with how we as society respond to that truth, right? Yeah, and correct. so the the way we respond to that truth would be like, I, I, where would you end up? What page would you end up on? But here's my, it's been over, it's 190 plus days. Mm -hmm. 
What else has to happen? Like it's it's just such a joke. Nothing else is going to happen. But but he, I just don't understand where the line in the sand is. I don't understand it at all. There is no clear line in the sand, and that's part of the problem. Do you think if it had been videotaped with that and and aired across the world, would that have done it for people? Per- perhaps, perhaps. Yeah, given given what's happened now, people people there, but. I mean, man, they've been doing this since. I mean, why do you need to see? No, I don't. That I'm, I'm, trauma porn. No, I don't. I don't know that this is egregious. Exactly. Because people used to always ask me, "What did they do to deserve yes. it?" Yes. Like well, every time, yeah. well, a she, dated, man, with, she yeah. dated a drug dealer. Yeah. <laughs> Even with that, right, right. Every video that comes out, people instantly start to try and fact find. A yes. F- well, fact in air quotes. Done X, y, and Z. Correct. If he hadn't run in the street while he was jogging. Yep. Because he, he, I mean, I don't know. I don't know. I, I think that, yeah. So, but to be clear, it's an American problem. So I don't, I don't be clear. The way race is constructed, because race is this thing that we constructed here. And, you know, we have a special relationship to it. Uh, the fact that race in America does not allow for black people to ever become white. It's the, we're the only group that hasn't become white. Jewish people became white. Italians became white. Like everybody transitioned. Even Hispanics now can check Caucasian on the box, right? Everyone gets brought in except for us. Uh, because the way race is constructed in America, they need the other, and we are that other, right? Mm-hmm. And so, every since that, I mean, that's the that's the original setup of the country, right? We and the b- black woman ends up being the other, other, the other, other, the other, because other. of the Ooh. added episode element title. of sex, <laughs> gender. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is, and it's it's really complicated because like. Why do we focus on black men when it comes to police violence? Because police are really scared of black men, right? So there's been a, since slavery, been a fear of black men rebelling, right? And the idea of black men getting white women, right? So so there's been this sort of, the, the police has been mobilized around the idea of keeping black men in place. And they honestly don't even know how to deal with black women. That That's a part of the thing is like, that's marginalization is about, well, they're just women. Like, so... So, but black women are super powerful and they're, they're, you know, they are. So it's like, they don't have a mechanism, even in their sexism, the way their sexism is constructed. They can't even imagine the black woman being a bigger threat than a black man. Right. So part of it is that it's, it's, it's a a part of, uh, of the marginalization has to do with the fact that they don't even have a mechanism to really understand the role of black women in our communities. Right. Because black women in the black communities are different than white women in the white community, right? It's just a different sort of evolution. Uh, and I think that's a part of the struggle. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I thought of this, and I'm, I don't know if either one of you have seen it. Have you guys seen Annabellum? No. I'm I'm oh, no most slave narrative in my life. <laughs> I will not do it. I support Annabellum, but I have not seen it. All right. You know, never mind. Mm-hmm. No, ma'am. Womp womp. So, by the way, you both should see it. I'm just going to say that. Okay. I know. I I get friend who worked on it. I should see it. Sorry, brother. I couldn't watch it in one episode. I couldn't watch it in one sitting. But, um, yeah, you you especially got to see it. All right. So, I want to talk about how people can start to better show up for Black women. And I want to ask you specifically because firsthand in my work with you, Mm You have shown up for me in ways that are both humbling and really annoying because of the position that society has put you in. Not because of you, but because when we navigate professional spaces together, 
for various reasons, okay, personal accountability. I can be perceived as the angry Black woman. But even if you give that same energy and deliver that same message, you're the enlightened Black man. And you navigate those spaces pretty well in partnership with me. So want to hear from you what your advice is for starting to do that work that you were talking about, showing up for your daughter and your friends and your colleagues, et cetera, that are Black women. So I'll share a story. It's a story about my good friend, uh, Susan Vale. Happy birthday, twins. Anyway, uh, but, 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 uh, so Susan and I went to film school together uh, at USC and it was this, this, uh, we used to produce stuff together, right? And we found that different people responded to us differently, right? That she, if she managed to cry, the discounts would really come her way, right? And if I managed to front flirt with, you know, gay men or, 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 uh, older women, that we get stuff, different stuff. And we used to just absolutely, enjoy navigating spaces and in laughing and sort of enjoy the, the absurdity of how people responded based off of their own stereotypes or whatever they had. And I think for me, that's a part of the way I try to show up. I mean, my, I, I absolutely like black women. That's a, something that I got to say seems not to be a, a fashionable thing. Like I really do. Like I have great, uh, wonderful experiences from Grandma in, 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 in the flower bed to mama, uh, advocating for me at school to, uh, some of my best friends that we played space and dominoes together and, and hung out and laugh. And they gave me great insight to understanding how to be present for black women and allow them a space to self-determine what they need from you. And it's a difficult thing because we in the world of mansplaining and I like talking. So, you know, I'm a mansplainer. I like, I can get in there in the world of mansplaining and fixing things. I really learned how to stop fixing things for black women. Mm -hmm. Like I've really learned how to like, just say, all right, so here's my idea. Please don't, you know, it may not agree with it, but like, here it is. And let's try this. Right. And, you know, that's it. And using, you know, whatever agency I have in the spaces we navigate together, right? Using that agency to be able to sort of move things and making sure we're on the same page. So when I go say the exact same thing that we want to say, uh, but also using sometimes the way people may perceive the way you say things. So being able to, so it's about being smart. And I think to me, when I dream of the future of blackness and I talk about like I, when I have a vision of how we're, where we're going to go, right? I think we got to move from the extremes and move to the work of being realist and getting things done. It's very connected to the project I'm doing on MLK right now, which is uh, MLK was in Hawaii in 1959. He did this speech in front of the Hawaiian State Assembly. Uh, and he talked about the, there being uh, pessimists, that there being extreme pessimists in the world and they're extreme optimists. In this instance, he was talking about people who are pessimistic feel like, look, uh, I don't think this country's ever going to change. They're never going to do stuff for black people. They're never going to change segregation. Mm -hmm. Systematic racism will be the law of the land. And then the extreme optimists were like, look at how far we come. We went, came from slavery to now Dr. King being able to be in the streets and he ain't dead, right? <laughs> At that moment, he wasn't. And they were like, wow, it's amazing that we were able to have these deep, dark conversations, right? Uh, and, and MLK says that, you know, 
the problem with being out there on those extremes is that it's really hard to get stuff done. And he's like, and what we need is a bit of realism. Like we need to, to get ourselves in the middle and do the work about how we actually bring about change. So rather than being theoretically arguing over like uh, points, right? Like you trying to make over there and you and yo, you and yo, if, you know, what, what is this in regards to Breonna Taylor? To me, like the best way I serve that sister is like, how do I, what can I do to, 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 affect change, right? And I was like, in that instance, the best thing I can do is keep holding up other Black women around me, right? Because my energy's best spent there. Like, I don't have a whole bunch of followings. I, I can't, like, offer my platform for that. Uh, so I like people who do, right? And I support that, that, that platform. But I think the work I do with you is it. The work I do on this film is it. Like, the idea of telling the story of MLK's work to move us from the extreme and move us into the middle and and get about changing things as opposed to just about being heard for our position. And I think that to me, is what it's all about. So, you know, I think we all have to define what winning looks like. So you all have to be leaders in that conversation in terms of bl- thinking about food. So what does winning look like for black women? It means that your podcast is success, right? That you have access and grow your ability to affect change. And so if I can support that, that's why I'm here, right? Mm-hmm. Is a part of that is like, all right, so can I help them do that? Because if that, if I hold you up in, in a way, and that's the reason why I never, ever, ever feel like it's a, it's a burden. Cause I know if I hold you up, then in the end it's blessing me, right? Because that's the idea is that you create space, uh, for, 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 well, by lifting up other folks, you also lifting yourself up too, right? So in a space, you got agency. If you bring people up to you, you're not losing anything. Yeah. You're gaining allies. You're gaining strength. And that's it for me. It's not that deep. Uh, it's okay to be wrong and to make mistakes. That's part of the reason why I had the conversation with my class. I was like, look, guys, I made, I was real comfortable <laughs> with this. And I was like, and upon reflecting on it, I was like, I don't know how, I don't know why necessarily I felt comfortable. I think was part this of recently it- recently with your class? So yeah, it's because we, I, the, cl- the class watched uh, the Lupe Fiasco song, Bitch Bad. Right, and right, that was right. sort of yes. the beginning of our conversation about sort of what is the B word's role uh, and why is it okay, right? Mm-hmm. And what, and co- the cool, I mean, the coolest part was the representation of my class is diverse, class wise. People come from a lot of different spaces. Mm-hmm. And so some people were like, hey, I'm a bad bitch. And I was like, wow. Like, I, so, so in having a conversation, it was awesome to have represented people from different sides of it so you can really get into uh, into it and talk about power and who controls it, right? If you self-determine that for yourself, then that can be a powerful thing. But if that's something that's applied to you by another, if someone mm-hmm. others you with it, uh, then that is a negative thing. And so it can be a powerful thing until it goes wrong. You know, so the uh, reclaiming of the N word in hip hop is supposed to be a right. reclaiming of power. And yet what happens? The biggest, you know, buyers of hip hop are suburban white kids. And then they're claiming the word and it's used as a weapon to our kids. And so perpetuates it all. It perpetuates <laughs> it all. I think MLK would say, 
what's the real estate? Like, what do we get to? What's winning look like? Right. As opposed to like, we may disagree. And that's the part where I'm at. Like Mm -hmm. my love for, for black folk. And I would say regular black folk. I had a good friend, Stan Young, who always used to always say, I like you Cleveland because you like regular black people. (laughs) (laughs) And so, because you roll with him and he's, you know, just a regular street dude, but he just, I don't know. He reminded me of so many people that I loved growing up. And so I feel real, real comfortable with this dude. And so I think that that's a part of it is saying that like some people will hear it and feel it differently than you. Mm-hmm. And I think when we talk about winning as a people, real leadership is not being right in the extremes. Real leadership is getting in the middle and pushing stuff and like, let's say, all right, let's accomplish something. Sure. And so I've, I've been spending a lot of time thinking, and this film to me is all about like, what are we claiming, right? What are we going to claim from this Black Lives moment? What, what things will will, I, will my daughter look back on and say, ah, that changed yeah. and this is sustainable and we can do it. And I think we can't be so caught up in our extremes. Right. And, and like I need to get everybody. I, I, I always talk to my my uh, progressive brothers and sisters and say, like, look, you know, some of my black people are homophobic. I don't know that we're going to get them to turn on that in this moment. So let's not make it. If you are not if you are homophobic, you can't be on team. Let's figure out the places we agree on. And let's work on that. And and I'm going to show up accepting everybody. Mm-hmm. And that's my example that I'm bringing. And my hope is that that light shines and over time people will get on to where I'm at. Right. But it's not my I'm, I'm not going to then say I'm not messing with you, brother, because you don't know. How, you know, I have to be there on the things that are, are, are that we agree on. And I think that is the energy that we have to go about winning with. And so to me, you know, that's my thing. I want to make sure you win. You're awesome. And what I see for you, you're pretty awesome too. Awesome too. So I'm I, I just awesome. I, I'm more awesome. Uh oh, we get. I didn't even do that. <laughs> Don't one. even try it. <laughs> so tell me, does the film have a name yet? So we're calling it King in Paradise, and and, and it's a look at MLK's five day trip in 1959. 1959, MLK was hanging out in Hawaii before MLK was MLK. Right, this is before he, it was the Muscat- Montgomery bus- boycott was the biggest thing. His first book, he just done like a year before. Wow. And so he really was just a young, you know, on the rise. Regular dude. Figure. Not regular, okay. but he, was, he wasn't super, superstar status. Like he came back in 64 to Hawaii and he was a superstar by then. But, but uh, yeah, in 59, he was still growing a following. And uh, this was the largest non-black or white group he had ever spoke in front of. And so he got to speak, be the first diplomat to speak in front of the Hawaiian State Assembly three weeks after it was formed. Because mm-hmm. in 59, Hawaii became a state. Uh, so it was a really interesting moment that many people don't know about. Uh, and so I love, love, love uh, being able to work on it and bring it to life with a great Charles Burnett, who inspired me to become a filmmaker, uh, killer of sheep. I saw in a, a class in UCLA, uh, third world cinema class, to show me Gabriel, rest in peace. Um, uh, gave me, got me exposed to this story about just black people, black family. And I was like, wow, film can be used for more than just entertaining. Yeah. And so I was like, ah, so to be able to tell this story about one of the heroes I have, uh, you know, on the political landscape, one of the greatest Americans, uh, MLK, and to tell the story with, uh, the guy who inspired me to become a filmmaker, Charles Burnett, is a beautiful, beautiful journey. And I'm excited, excited about, about making this. I know you're happen. in the process of fundraising currently. How can people support? So uh, go check out uh, kingofparadise.com. I'm sure we'll, we'll tag it somewhere. Uh, and, and so 
uh, yeah, just check it out. You can see where we are in the process. You can see what level you can get in at. Uh, I am uh, having fun now spending my Saturdays uh, talking to friends and getting them excited about the process of making the film. I mean, ultimately, we, we, we were able to raise 5000 in our first phase, uh, which allowed us to get our PR team on board and a grant writing team on board and to set up our collateral. We shot a wonderful teaser. And so as we're in the process of doing all that stuff, uh, now we're raising funds to get back there and shoot a short. And, and we've got to collect some of these stories because, you know, there's a pandemic quite apparently. Right. And so we just want to make sure we get all of our, <laughs> our, our our elders recorded while we can. So the idea is to go there. This phase two is all about getting there, telling the story. And so we're looking not only for individual donors, but we're looking for corporate sponsors. So people who have diversity messages they'd like to amplify. This is a great opportunity to partner uh, with that. So. Excellent. Yeah. Thanks for being brave enough to come back for round two. It's all good. You know, she <laughs> shot at me a little bit, but that's good. It's, it's all love, I'm though. I'm glad I dodged it's it this love. week. You, get, you got it. It's all love. Join us next Thursday for another enlightening conversation. We're going to be talking about allyship. Yes. With two guests. You can always learn more and follow us at erasedpodcast.com. That's erased with a C. We're also on Instagram and Facebook. And please rate and review us on all platforms, especially Apple Podcasts. They let you review. Thank you very much. Pleasure, pleasure. Stop doing cool ass shit. <laughs> I want to leave that in so badly. We can. Oh, excellent. Love it. <laughs> Love it. Mm-hmm.